Welcome to the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a weekly podcast for writers. Grab a cup of coffee, perhaps some paper and pen, and enjoy an interview with an author, a chat with a writing tool creator, perhaps a conversation with an editor or other publishing expert, as well as Kat's thoughts on writing and her own creative journey. You'll laugh, you'll cry, well, hopefully not actually cry, but you will probably learn something. And I hope you'll be inspired to write because as I always say, you have a story, you should write it down. This is Pencils and Lipstick. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 125 of the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. It is, I was going to say October, it is April 3rd. Yes, (laughs) it is April 3rd. It's not. It's April 2nd. Oh my gosh. Welcome everyone to the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast. It is April 2nd, 2022, and we are on episode 125. Well, that was a wonky start to the show, but that's right. Today, I have an amazing guest. You are going to absolutely love listening to her. Her name is Alessandra Tori. Yes, She is a romance writer and a romantic suspense writer. She knows a ton of stuff about indie publishing and traditionally publishing. And she has this great thing called Inker's Con pretty much every year, which I was really interested in because I find that to be like so amazingly a lot of work to put together this conference. But I attended last year because, funny story, I found this ticket in my box, which then I later found the payment on my bill. <laughs> so it wasn't a gift. It was me. I had bought it um, probably on a whim, but I actually had a really good time attending. She has amazing speakers, um, lots of authors, but lots of people also who understand marketing and business. And that's what we need as authors, right? So especially indie authors. And this year she gets to do it live again. So we talk about her writing journey, about her InkersCon journey, and about all the things in between. You're, if you don't follow Alessandra already, you really should. Um, she's been around since 2012, and she's kind of in that group of indie writers who really got in on the ground floor of indie writing and so and indie publishing. So they really understand the world. They've seen what has changed. Um, so I think they have a really good bird's eye view of, you know, what to go in all in on and what might change in the near future. But I also love, you know, just how willing she is to learn new things. And we talk about that as well. You should head on over to her website and you should follow her. Of course, links are in the show notes. Her name is Alessandra Tori. It's T-O-R-R-E. Even if you don't read romance, she has a lot of really good advice for authors. I enjoy her Goodreads webinars that she does every once in a while. I don't know how often she does it, but that is definitely something to keep an eye out on. She's really good on Goodreads and on how authors can utilize Goodreads and use it like to the biggest benefit of selling books, which is what we all want to do, correct? This past week, I have been working a lot on my stories, like I told you last week, going back to really the heart of the stories, the heart of the characters, and 
amazingly enough, I had the opportunity to talk to uh, a new writer um, who just sort of came and asked me, like, how do you, you know, I have this idea for this person. What do I do with it? How do you go from idea and like scribbles to an actual book? And so it was really fun to be able to sit down with her. And we didn't have tons of time, but to say, okay, you have this person. But what I would really recommend is going back, you know, to the very beginning of it. So what is it that you sort of want to talk about with this book? And she said, well, I kind of want to use some of my experience and some of my friend's experience to say, like, what if all of the romance fumbles and stumbles actually brought me to the point that she's talking in her character's voice of, you know, finally finding love in myself and being okay by myself. And and I said, well, that's, that's awesome. You already have your what if, right? And so we went through and said, that's a really great premise. I think that that makes an amazing book, if not series. And a lot of women would like to read that because you're kind of going to go, you know, along this, the ride with this woman who is going to experience a lot of things. She's going to go on dates. Her friends are going to go on dates. Um, I hadn't thought about it at the time, but kind of like a, a sex in the city, but really looking for yourself and, and seeing all these funny stories. And she, you know, is a metropolis woman, modern woman. So she has all these stories compared to my boring suburban mom life you know, friends getting together and finding true love. And then, you know, some of them divorcing and she's sort of on the sidelines and she's like, I would love to put all these into a book. And I said, that's awesome. But then I told her what you really need to do, what I would recommend you do, which not everybody does. And I completely recognize that, but this is what has helped me with this new novel that I'm writing. And some of my short stories that I went back to is sitting down and really looking at that character and finding the moment that has really defined their misbelief or their view of the world that has gone on to dictate how they respond to things in the world. Because the misbelief that we have, I am not enough. I am not cute enough. I don't fit into the society mold. Even my parents didn't think I was enough. I don't think that I'm the marrying type or I am the type that a a man will settle down with, you know, whatever she decides her misbelief is, we don't go around our lives psychoanalyzing ourselves and bringing that to the forefront. I did read a book recently where I think the writer had the idea correct, but she just, it, like most of us, we have these ideas and sometimes we pull it off and sometimes we don't. But I think one of the things that we do as we're starting off writing, or maybe if we're just not feeling the story, maybe that's when it happens. Um, Because her character would constantly talk about her misbelief of how she recognized that because of her mom's early onset Alzheimer's, she had an issue with trusting people. She didn't want to get too close because, you know, you could lose this person very early on and they could quite literally lose their minds and and forget you. And so she would, but in the book, in the story, she's recognizing this within herself, but then refusing to do anything about it. And that's what I think is 
is a little bit, you have to really play with that delicately because we might recognize some of our misbeliefs, but there has to be a reason why we're not facing them in that moment of recognition, especially in a book, because a book has an ending, whereas our lives don't, <laughs> you know? So the the reader is going to expect that when a character comes up against this wall, or let's say this mirror that shines back their misbelief in them, and they're kind of having this aha moment, there has to be a reason for them to not grow from that. Uh, the way that you can do it, because if you if you want the idea of the story to say that, that actually your main character didn't grow, is you're going to have to have another character shine a light on the main character's misbelief and then have the, the main character behave in the same way and shun that and turn away from the opportunity to look themselves in the mirror. But if you have the main character looking at themselves in the mirror and looking at their misbelief, it's really hard to swallow for a, a reader that that they're not going to face up to that because again, a book is finite and we expect, you know, this to sort of be a condensed version of life, of human life. And maybe you can get away with it once, but you certainly can't get away with it four times. It's not that it wasn't a good enough book to read, but it's, you know, it didn't make it therefore then to the list of you have to read this book on my list. Okay. Of course, that has to do with a lot of things, but I think the characters that really stick with us are those characters that either face their misbeliefs in the mirror or when the mirror is held up to them by another character, they close their eyes and say na 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 boo boo and you know run away with their their hands over their ears. Um, there is actually a really good book, Trinity. It's about Northern Ireland and one of the characters, the sister. Oh man, you're rooting for that sister to get out of her misbelief that, I mean, they grew up very Catholic. So her misbelief is that sex is scary and it's dirty and she doesn't want anything to do with it. And, and her husband loves her. And so he's willing to, to not do anything with her. And now she's so close at the end to changing her misbelief. And then in the story, she doesn't, <laughs> but it's the mirror is held up by her brother and she refuses to, to look herself in the eye. So that is, it is possible to do that. And it's possible to do it. Well, that book has stayed with me for a long time and it's really on my book of must reads, but they can't, it's almost like the other character has to do it. So I'm talking with her about this, about their misbelief. And then what I think is probably the greatest thing ever is writing out where that misbelief came from. And to me, it took a couple times and I wrote a couple different scenes and it was so much fun to do that I'm surprised in myself that it didn't feel like a waste of time. Because I really like to move on with my books, you know, like, oh, look at all the things, you know, look how far I'm going. But I think that I really realized that I needed to go back. And now I have like all of these scenes right now that are really fun. They really dig into this family uh, that he comes from. And I was thinking the other day, like, these are going to be great extras to give out to people. I'm really excited about it. 
And that's interesting because if you're in this world, you hear, you know, for your newsletter, give out, you know, deleted scene, all this. And I'm like, I don't have like full deleted scenes. I have like half a deleted scene, you know, lots of half a deleted scenes or like a fully rewritten scene. Why would I give the, the scene that before it was rewritten? But I think, you know, like things are clicking in my head of like, okay, this is like a deleted scene, like a scene that helped me as a writer, but didn't make it into the book and, and kind of was never going to make it in the book. Now, I was listening to the, I think it's called I Wish I Had Known Then writing podcast. I'll put the link in the show notes if you want to check it out. They were talking about characters. I think this was a little bit older show. And they sound like they do what I had done previously and that they write to, to get to know their character. And that's fine if it, it if it gets to that point. And one of my issues with this new book is that I wasn't getting to that point. I wasn't finding that character. You know, I, he wasn't, I didn't understand him. And so 40,000 words in, if you don't understand your character, you really should go back. And so what I told my friend is, I would just recommend that you you do it from the beginning, especially because she's a full-time um, worker, you know, has a whole other job and probably doesn't want to spend three years writing a book. <laughs> um, so we will continue to see how that is working for me. I do not guarantee that I won't change my mind at some point in the future or for a different book. So if you are, you know, stumped a bit on your character, on your plot, on the story itself, it's kind of falling flat. I am going to have a workshop on Saturday, April 30th. It's going to be virtual. I think you should come in and see what this method is in detail that I've been doing. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have time to write. And I'm thinking about doing this quite often throughout the year. It will help me. It will help others. I really want to be able to articulate this better to people in a shorter amount of time. So I'm going to be presenting it a lot and you might as well be there to help your story along. If you don't have a story yet, that's fine. You can start from the beginning and you don't have to go back. You can come in with an idea of a person and just go from there and build it and then go home and, and write. So if you want to, you can sign up. The link is below as a Patreon uh, member. If you are a sponsor of the show from like $3 to $5 to $10. I don't even know anymore what's on there, but it starts pretty low. You will find a discount code. I think it's 50% off. So it's up to you if you want to become a Patreon supporter and you can do it for one month just to get your discount pretty much. But come on, find out how I have, you know, put this method to the test and I've really enjoyed it. I think it'll be well worth two hours of your Saturday. And don't worry if you can't make it April 30th, I will have another one probably end of May, early June. So other than that, I've been focusing a lot on marketing and getting my other books out there. I want to keep drumming up some support (laughs) for the other books because I do plan on writing the, the second book to Stepping Across the Desert, 
Now, I had no plan to make that a series whatsoever, but I really want to write Philip Dose's uh, story that is Christoph's friend. So I pretty much have the background on that one written out, and I'm excited to start writing the story. And I think I could get it done this summer. So really, I have to work on Tread's story first, and then I'll go to Doser's story. And so that is the plan. I've been listening a lot to Sell More Books, the podcast. I think that's Brian Cohen's podcast and the self-publishing formula contest with Mark, contest, podcast with Mark Dawson. I have just done a lot of newsletter swaps. So book funnel, story origin, book promotions, both sales and um, some giveaways. And I'm probably going to run some ads. I don't know. I'm thinking about it. I'm digging into that a little bit more. As far as the writing community goes, we had Ross McMeekin in the group just recently. We are going to do workshops this these coming months. We're going to have an Instagram and brand expert because as authors, we need to know how to do how to use Instagram and to use Instagram well, we really need to understand how to build a brand and see ourselves as a brand. So that's what we're going to do. I am going to bring in a Pinterest expert specialist. Emma Desi is going to do a workshop with us on scenes. Jay Thorne is coming in in the fall to do a workshop with us. We have a lot of really great people. And then I'm sort of waiting on some concrete yeses from other people. But we also have marketing every single Friday. We have brainstorming on the third Friday of every month. And as part of the creative writing community, you have access, full access to the creative writing sessions membership. So we have 80 hours of sprints and co-writing Somebody told me the other day, I think I told you all that uh, sprints has a, you know, a, a bad <laughs> idea, like bad shadow to, to that word. So they are co-writing sessions, however you want to say it. We get together, we set the timer, we write. We can see each other's screens on Zoom, but we're pretty much just writing. And we have about 40 hours, 80 hours a month. Yes, it's a little insane, but we're getting a lot done. So if that is something that you need, if you need to get some writing done, you should sign up and sprint with us. You get one week free. You can try it out and you can cancel before the week is up and say, nope, I don't like it. Or yes, give me more, please. And we will be switching the schedule a little bit for the summer, probably adding a few more hours. And into the fall, we're going to add some evening hours. So we're going to try to accommodate lots of people. If you want to get a hold of me, you can find me mostly on Instagram at catcaldwell.author, Facebook at catcaldwellauthor. I'm also trying to be on LinkedIn more, Pinterest more, Goodreads. You can find me everywhere. You can find my newsletter below. I have a writer's newsletter and a reader's newsletter. And you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash pencils underscore lipstick. If you want to become a sponsor of the show, you will get a shout out on the show. Um, even with your book, if you are a writer, I will shout out the name of your book as well. And like I said, you get discounts 
to the workshops if you are a sponsor of the show, a patron of the show. And the patrons definitely help with the payment of the editing and the putting together of the podcast. But without further ado, oh, and I do have to remind you to subscribe and like the show and share it with all the people that you know and love and who will love listening to the show. Links are below in the show notes. And without further ado, here's Alessandra Torrey. Alessandra Torrey is a New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal bestselling author. She's written over 23 novels, and she also writes in romance and suspense as A.R. Torrey. Her first book, Blindfolded Innocence, was a breakout romance hit, rising to the top of the ebook charts on Amazon, where it attracted the interest of major publishing houses. Less than 12 months later, Tori signed a second figure print deal, this time with Red Hook Hatch for the Deanna Madden series and Attic Suspense trilogy. So she is both traditionally and indie published, which we talk about in the interview. But what makes Alessandra Tori is that she not only has success as a writer, but as someone who helps authors become successful. She has an author community on Facebook with over 20,000 members, and she's also the founder of InkersCon, an annual authors conference. As a self-publishing advocate, Alessandra universities and conventions and author groups. And today she is speaking to us at the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. So we go through her journey, becoming a writer, um, how she got into it, her different genres that she writes, and how she got into becoming the founder of InkersCon, the Writers Conference. I think you're really going to enjoy this show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast. I'm excited to have with me today, Alessandra Tori. Hello, Alessandra. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, I'm excited to have you on. Um, you are a romance writer. You're very successful in the field. Um, so I'm excited to hear about your writing experience and a little thing you call InkersCon, which is not little at all, but we'll get to that <laughs> in a little bit. But before we start, could you tell people a little bit just where you're from, and then we'll get into your story. Absolutely. So I, um, I'm i a Florida girl. I live in Key West, Florida, which is a small island, the very, very southern uh, tip of Florida. And I write, as you said, romance. I also write suspense under A.R. Tory. So I am. Um, I have two pen names. And I am both traditionally and um, self-published. I used to always say that my biggest success was through self-publishing, even though I had multiple traditional publishing contracts. I've hit the New York Times with seven times all with self-published titles. So that's really my heart and my love. But I really can't say that anymore because my recent traditional published books have have taken off. So, um, but I I will just say that I'm an indie at heart. (laughs) <laughs> Good. Well, as we were talking about before, um, I think most authors straddle that fence. Like we want a little to publish. We want to be, you know, have the freedom of indie published, but it's great to have that acknowledgement of traditionally published too, because it still carries that weight, you know, it does. that it's others so really think your book is yeah. good. Yeah. I got into the business in 2012. That was when I published my okay. first book. And then indie publishing really had this stigma. And that stigma is still in certain circles. You know, you still have 
especially like strangers who know nothing about our industry will be like, oh, are yes. you going to get a publisher one day? You know, um, and they don't realize that we can do it just as well or better on our own. But uh, but definitely 2012, there was that that stigma. And I think as you and I were chatting beforehand, it's always kind of a grass is greener thing. Like even if yeah. you're rocking and rolling and doing awesome in indie publishing, a lot of us are still, it, it's, it, you need to know your options, right? So you're right. always kind of just paying attention to the other side of the fence and the same traditional, I have a lot of traditionally published authors that are asking me about self-publishing and that are making that transition to self-publishing or becoming hybrid, which I love to see. Oh, that's interesting. So, so you started 10 years ago now. Yep. Yep. Wow. Okay. So how, how did you start? What did you start in um, romance or in suspense? Yep. So I started the summer of 2012. I had uh, lost my job. I was in between jobs. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. Um, and I was lucky the job I worked for, uh, that company sold. My husband was one of the owners of that company. So we had this bit, we had some money at where I could mm-hmm. do like whatever I wanted to do. So I was trying to figure out like, gosh, what have I always wanted to do in, in life? And, um, writing was not what came to mind at all. Really? It was like, no, I was thinking, oh, like maybe I'll go to law school. I don't know why. And I think I watched Legally Blonde at one point and thought like law school, <laughs> but I was not thinking writing at all because I didn't think that I had any skill. Why would I think that I had skill writing? But I love to read and I, um, okay. and I read nonstop and, um, my mom actually started to write a book with a co-author. So I approached her. She was writing a book and she was telling me about self-publishing and she was sending me some of her books on writing. And I realized that there was this entire industry where someone could write a book and publish it on their own and no one would ever have to know about it. And you wouldn't have to, you know, send it off to New York and get rejection letters for three years. And I thought, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing anything right now. Um, I read where E.L. James was making like a million dollars a day. And I was like, you know, (laughs) if I got 1% of that, I'd be like set, you know? So I thought, why not? Like, I'll just, I'll just write a book. I won't tell a soul about it. I didn't tell anyone but my husband and I'll just put it online. I'll just see what happens. And that was what I did. I wrote a book. I wrote it. I read it twice. Sounded pretty good to me. I mean, in retrospect, it was horribly written and riddled with typos, but I thought sounds good. I made my own cover. I stuck it on Kindle. And, and then I just kind of sat back and watched and it didn't, it did. Okay. It was, it, so it was a sexy romance novel. So that was another mm-hmm. reason why I could not tell a soul about this book. It was like, <laughs> you know, because I know what I was thinking. I was thinking, oh, E.L. James is definitely like, you know, dungeoning it up in her house. And, he, and, and now I'm a total hypocrite because I'm writing all this sexy stuff, you know? And so I'm thinking people are going to think I'm doing all this stuff in my, <laughs> in my own life. So it was like, can't tell anybody. And I did, I was getting to the point where I was making like $20 a day on this book. And I thought, you know, maybe, maybe more, maybe like 15, 15, 10, 10, $15 a day. But I thought if I wrote 10 books, you know, and I was making 10 or $15 a day, like I wouldn't have to go back to work. This could just be my job. I was making $38,000 a year in my job prior to that. And I was like, you know, maybe this could be a career for me. So I started thinking about a second book and three months into my first book, we were about to leave town and I'm sorry, you, I think you asked me a quick question. No, no, I love this. Go ahead. (laughs) um, We were about to leave town for the weekend. And I said, you know, I was looking at my book, this page on Amazon, which looks exactly the same 10 years later. Like I don't haven't changed a thing. 
I'm looking at my book page, my name is on, and I was like, you know, I think I'll write another book description. Like, I'll just write a mm. fresh book description. So I jotted down a fresh book description. I didn't even save the prior one. I just, you know, re-uploaded it in Kindle. And we got in the car and we drove to Memphis, which was like seven hours away at the time. As, as a new author, as many of you listening will know, you like obsessively check your sales rank and, and, and purchases, you know? And so the minute we got to Wi-Fi, this was back when I didn't have like, inter, you know, a cell phone with Wi-Fi, right. I checked my sales and I had had a hundred sales like in the six wow. hour drive. And I was like, what's like, that's crazy. Like there must be a glitch or something. I don't know. So we went to dinner and came back and I had had a hundred more sales when we were at dinner. And the next day I had like 600 sales the next day, like wow. just in that day. And then all of a sudden I had a thousand sales a day. And then I was started ranking in the top Amazon top 100. And I was having 2000, 3000 sales a day. And it was all because I changed that book description. And that is a lesson that I have carried with me wow. for the past 10 years is I didn't realize how many people were clicking on my book page because I had a very provocative cover. And I didn't realize how many people were clicking on that book page. And the reviews were strong. I had good reviews, but you know, that that description was the missing piece. And it wasn't when I fixed that, then my conversion went through the roof. Um, and then and that really launched my entire career because at that point in time, then agents were calling me out. And it's totally worth it. <laughs> yeah. I got a publishing deal and then okay. suddenly. I had a six-figure publishing deal and an agent and a publisher. And it was like, oh, I guess this is my new job, you know, like, and maybe I should call my family at this point because, you know, my life had suddenly, literally in the course of just two months, changed completely. Wow. Okay. So did they pick up that book or were they looking to pick up you writing a new one? So back in 2012, when uh, indie books were going crazy, publishers didn't really know what to do with us, right? Mm-hmm. And they thought like, oh, if these podunk authors who don't know anything about anything, which granted, I did not know anything about anything, but there were a lot of really smart self-published authors out there. Um, but I was not one of them at that time. They were like, if they could get 50,000 sales, imagine what we could do with our system. So they were mm. grabbing books that were hitting you know, and doing well on Amazon. And then they were offering these big six figure book deals. And then they were going to launch them in paperback and expecting them to take off. And they only did that for like a year and a half before they were just losing massive amounts of money Okay, because those books weren't really converting. Like they had already, by the time we went through the traditional publishing cycle of six months or whatever, it was like people had already moved on to other titles, you know? And so it wasn't, so they bought that first book, which was Blindfold Innocence, in a two-book deal. So um, they bought that and the sequel, um, which I hadn't even planned on writing a sequel at that time. But <laughs> suddenly I was, it ended up being a trilogy, but I wasn't planning on it being a, a sequel. And then with my third book, I did the same thing. The Girl in 60, I self-published it. And then six, nine months after it was out, and it really didn't even do that great. My agent was like, let's, let's pitch it. And we ended up selling that to Hachette. But nowadays they won't do that. They want mm-hmm. something new. And I have a lot of authors come to me and they're like, oh, you know, this book has great reviews. It just hasn't gotten visibility. I, you know, I want to try to pitch it traditionally. And and they really aren't interested in that. And especially if it did not do well. I very rarely, I do see them buy um, pre-published books, right. but it's now it's an oddity. Yeah. I mean, things have changed quite a bit. I think you were, you along with a couple other people who really hit in 2011, 2012, 
like it was an amazing thing to have this Kindle where, I mean, I was, you know, having, I had babies in a rocking chair and I would have my Kindle and I would finish a book and I could go on to the next one because I had unlimited. And so it was like a great moment for readers and for writers, I think. But then like the industry has caught up yeah. <laughs> on some things, you know? Um, so did you end up going back? Cause you had said you ha- it had typos. Did you go, go back and, and fix those? Like, but is it pretty much the same book as before? Yeah. So some of my early reviews, I, I got dinged a few with one and two star reviews that were saying it needed editing. Mm. At that point in time, I had, I had earned enough where I knew I was going to get four or $500, like at my next you know, payment. Okay. Um, so I did hire an editor and I didn't know what I was doing. So it turned out I hired the equivalent of a proofreader, I think. But mm-hmm. so she did a very basic edit, caught five or six typos, but it still hadn't been professionally edited or developmental edit or anything like that. Um, so then when Harlequin bought the book, they did um, a professional edit, but they were really rushing it to, to books. So and I was a brand new author. I'd never worked with an editor before. So I don't, looking back, it wasn't a deep edit, but I don't know if okay. it wasn't a deep edit because of time frame or because of my own lack of knowledge at that point in time. Um, it's still, t- I, it is hard for me to read that book now because I feel like it is amateurishly written. And it's that book that when people are like, oh, I started reading Blindfold of Innocence. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> I write. Are you I think sure? we all. What do you want to read? Like you know, I would, I would love to take. I would love to one day get the rights back to that book and rewrite it. You know, because I, I think the story is amazing. Um, but it is. If anyone listening has read that book, I, I'm sorry, and I, you know, read it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things about having an art that is out in the world because you grow you know, and you learn more and, you know, I mean, gosh, it's it's one of those things where a lot of people are kind of like, I don't know. Desiree Holt actually told me that she went back and like completely rewrote her first book because she was like, I had to, I had to go back. and fix It It wasn't, I've done it on multiple backlist titles. Now all of my indie books, I feel proud of and I'm happy with, but all of the ones that I was starting to be like cringy on when people would mention they read, read them, I was like, that's my sign. Like I need to take them off. I need to rewrite them. <laughs> and my writing has changed in some ways. Okay. In some ways, not a great thing. I was on a private author chat the other day and we were talking about how when we go back and read our first stuff, it was so raw. Like raw was mm-hmm. the word that three of us used. Like we weren't afraid we would write really bold stuff. And I think with society and everything else, like we've gotten so worried about offending a, you know, it also in, in 2012, like a hero would grab the heroine and shove her against the wall. And she'd be like, no. And he'd be like, yes. And that was like, now it's like, are you sure I can touch you? And she's like, yes. And he's like, you know, I need that verbal consent, you know, I mean, and so it's, it's a different, it's a different environment, but we write, we write differently. And I think we are, I feel, I'm worried that my work is a more muted or diluted over time. I think in almost every genre that's happened, because I was talking with some other women's fiction and, um, 
it's just, it's that straight, all the questions that are coming up as you're writing, am I allowed to add this character? Are they allowed to do that? And what's interesting to me as a reader is I, I'm trying to think of the, the names of the books, but like the best romance books are from like the seventies and (laughs) eighties. You know, I mean, it's all just steamy and just heart pounding, you know, and I actually went, found one of them and saw a review of a, um, I think a younger millennial or maybe even younger, whatever that generation is. And they were just appalled (laughs) and they were calling things out that I hadn't even thought of. (laughs) I hadn't even thought to be offended by it. Um, So it is a hard, it's a hard balance, but I don't know. I don't know how, how we would change that, honestly, because you still want to sell your books and the readers are the readers, you know? So do you find writing suspense is you get to be a little bit different in your writing and pull out different themes? Yeah. So what's interesting is when I sat down to write my first book, I wrote a romance and I really wasn't Mm -hmm. expecting to ever be a romance writer because I'd never read romance. And that was part of my problem early on. Mm, I actually think it was a good thing because I ended up writing very non-formulaic and um, kind of out of the box romance. And it's, it, it wasn't intentional. It's because I didn't read romance. And so I didn't know okay. how romance stories were supposed to be told. That is not what I would suggest. Uh, you know, my my big advice is often like, if you're not a reader, that can be a problem, you know, mm-hmm. and you read, read in your genre. I always read suspense. That was really, okay. and that was really what I wanted to write in. But when my first book was a hit and then I had a publishing deal and then I had to write that sequel, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden I had tens of thousands of readers that were romance readers. So, which is why I have 22 romance novels, you know, right. on myself. But suspense is really, it was like, if I could get to the point where I was financially, you know, independent enough where I could just write what I want to write, I want to okay. write suspense. And that was really what I wanted. And there's so much more freedom in writing suspense because I can make the main character the bad guy, you know, um, okay. and I can kill off my main character. And, you know, I, who knows what the ending could be. It could be whatever I want it to be. Maybe the bad guy wins. Maybe the bad guy doesn't. But in romance, you really have to have certain elements if you want to be successful, you know, and if you want yes. to have readers that are satisfied. And when you have that guaranteed ending, it can cause the the route there to become very challenging to to keep it creative and to keep it. Um, so I really enjoyed the transition. Um, I haven't okay. written a romance novel now in two years, but I, I I will go back to it because because I do I have grown to love romance, but I prefer writing suspense. I okay. can't remember was what your it, question was. <laughs> just the, um, the difference of writing it. And di- was it difficult to start writing suspense? Because I you know, not always just because we read a, a genre is it easy. And I would, I would, I mean, I don't write it because it kind of freaks me out <laughs> because you have to have so many elements. The reader needs to, you know, know that you're not hiding things, but they also don't want it to be obvious. It seems very complicated to me. So did yeah, you? Yeah, it is. No, it is. And so I, I did ease it. A lot of my romance novels had suspense in them just because when I would get bored, I would start killing off people. Like that was, you know, like I was like, wouldn't doubt throw a dead body into the room, you know? Um, So I, I had had a lot of um, books there. My suspense plots have gotten progressively more intricate and complex. Okay. And I think if I had tried to write 
the good lie is a suspense is a serial killer um almost police procedural but it's a psychological thriller um if i had tried to write that as my first suspense i don't think there's any way i could have done it because there were so many moving pieces um but i've been able to to ease into it and as as i've gone it's gotten progressively easier and i feel more confident and taking on different things. It's also, I don't have the romance to fall back on. So um, in romance novels, you know, that's a tool you can use in a lot of things. Sex is a tool I can use in a lot of different ways. I can use it to add intimacy or to cause a couple to grow stronger. You know, I can cause it to add problems, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and But there's a lot of emotions that can be expressed. Anger, sadness, you know, with mm-hmm. sex, you know, breakup sex. When you take all that out, one of the most intimidating things for me was when I wrote The Ghost Rider, which was a women's fiction psychological suspense, and it had a man and a woman, and they they were just friends. There was absolutely no romantic element, but they had to slowly become friends and trust each other. That was so hard for me to write mm. because I didn't know how to do that. You know, I didn't know how to authentically grow a friendship between opposing sex of, of differing ages and and do it in a you know valid way without showing that intimacy physically as they would get closer but i mean it it happened and apparently i did it fine but that was one of the most intimidating things for me when i look back at all of my novels right i think that's really interesting because i've talked to a lot of writers and myself included and it sounds like you like you've written a few books and you come up against another story that you feel like you should know how to write, but all of a sudden you're finding yourself learning a whole different way of writing. And I think that's important to understand that you're not alone as a writer. Like sometimes you get a story and it stumps you for a while. Like, how am I going to get these people to do what I expect them to do? And to learn a new, I guess, sort of skill in the writing, maybe, you know, like, how do they do this in that genre? Which again, goes back to your advice of, of like, pick up a book in the genre and maybe read it more analytically, I guess, or see what you like about it. But it is interesting to think just because you've written, you know, even 22 books, if you pick up a new genre, it's still going to be a new challenge, right? Absolutely. And I think they're all like tools in our tool belt, you know, and so Mm -hmm. it's figuring out how to use those. And even if you are switching genres or whatever else, the story elements are the same. It's just trying to figure out how you're going to communicate that. And I do what you just said. A lot of times if I'm stuck like with that, you know, and I ask my readers, like I need, I need some great stories that have a fantastic platonic relationship between, a, you know, a man and a woman. And, um, and you'll get suggestions. And then I read those. And like you said, read them in an analytical fashion, like, you know, and I'll stop at 25% in and go, okay, like, do I feel like they're close right now? No. You know, and then, you know, what, why not? Like, what is it that has indicated and what percentage of the scenes are happening between them? And, you know, are those mostly dialogue scenes or, you know, am I in one person's point of view? And that's another thing that you just learn with time is point of views and when to use, you know, differing point of views. I write majority of my stories. I write the main, and this is also not not normal, but I write my main character in first person. And then I write all of my other characters in third person. And I'm seeing, and I did that early on. I did that with male point of views because I just didn't know how to write from a first Mm. person male point of view. 
And when I tried to, it was like, I got, I would get tied up in knots mentally. Like I was like, gosh, why can't I write this scene? This should be a simple scene. And I was like, okay, it's because I don't know how he's thinking, you know, and I just don't know how to talk in his voice. And it was just so much easier for me to write him in third person. And I'd rather write him in third person well or okay rather than write him poorly in first person. And I still, that's a crutch I still lean on a lot. Huh, I like that. That's an interesting way to to write. I was thinking the other day of like, I went back to some books that I love <laughs> as a reader, just for enjoyment. I never, I guess, pay attention to the point of view, <laughs> like yeah. in the first person, third person, you know, like he, once it sucks you in, you read it. And and so I went it's back to see. You don't pay attention. That's the thing. Yeah. It normally stands, stands out when it's bad. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that's an interesting way to do it. I'll have to see if I've read anything else like that. Not analytically, clearly. I just allow myself to be sucked in. What I do want to talk to you about too is you you have quite a bit of success from the books. I've also seen that you have one in a movie. So that's that is pretty amazing on Passion Flicks. Yep. Hollywood Dirt was um produced in gosh. I think like four years ago. Yeah, by Passion Flicks, which is a studio that only produces book adaptation, romance book adaptation. So that's, that's really cool. Yeah. That's really cool. So you have found quite a bit of success as a writer and yet you still have a passion to help writers find success, which I think is pretty amazing because a lot of times, I mean, for whatever reason, people don't always do that. They'll stick to their writing or whatever. Who knows the reasons, but what are your reasons for wanting to also continue to help writers? You have a newsletter, you give out advice, you give out freebies, you have a conference. I mean, what is it that drives you to want to continue to help authors find that same success you have? So I started working in with authors and I, and I, I I don't really work with authors for the most part. I, I try to offer as many resources as possible. And as soon as you start to find success. Well, there were two factors. As soon as you mm-hmm. start to find a lot of success, you start getting emails from authors okay. and they're asking, you know, for advice and they're asking how you became successful and they're asking that sort of thing. And I would put so much time into responding to these. And the problem is you're responding to one person who may mm-hmm. or may not take your advice and may or may not fit them. But I'm still not doing a great job, really, of answering their question. What I needed to do to answer their question was spend like six hours, you know, talking through things. So there was that aspect of things. The other aspect was when I started in 2012, there was very few resources available. Mm-hmm. Um, and and maybe they were there and I just didn't know how to find them. But there weren't the Facebook groups there are now. There weren't the YouTube videos there are because self-publishing was so new and traditional authors aren't on, you know, aren't out there, you know, you might be able to find things on craft, but as far as marketing and publishing books, there just wasn't that information out there. So, so much of my early career was really performed by me, like running in one direction until I hit a wall and then I would turn and run another direction. I was completely blind and I didn't know what was working and what wasn't working. And it was one of those things. It was like, if I ever figure this out, like I want to help other authors right. with it's also just a very lonely business, you know, um, yeah. and it's fun to be part of an author community and talk about authors. So with all of those things, what first, I first started was, was courses. And it was like, um, I created a course, 
how to write your first book. And that was really just because it was me putting everything I knew mm-hmm. down on video and on the computer as deeply as I could. So that if someone reached out to me, instead of me just writing back a few paragraphs, I could, I could have something um, that mm-hmm. they can work through. And then it moved into, um, and I started a Facebook group and that, and the Facebook group, which is Alexander Tory Inkers is, is one of the joys of my life. I mean, I, thankfully it has avoided drama and it has avoided wow, you know, good job. negativity. Yes. But it's just great. And, and everyone in that group knows, there are so many people in that group that know so much more than me, but it allows um, just searching the group or watching the threads can really teach someone, but it's basically a group of people ask questions and people respond with, um, with feedback and answers. But it really gave back to me a lot because I do get burnt out on writing. So it's nice mm-hmm. to be able to divide my time. I get as much out of it as I get into it, if not more. So, yeah. uh, so it's nice to be able to kind of switch to a different part of my brain. It also challenges me to learn more because I can't talk about things intelligently unless I know them. And so I have to learn pretty much continually. And it's really easy as authors for us to stop learning and just just focus on our deadline and our real life and everything else. So it's been a nice, for me, a nice sanity, you know, maintainer, because it does help me balance my life. Um, And it's also, I've met just the coolest people, you know, that I normally wouldn't have an opportunity. I normally wouldn't have an opportunity to talk to someone like you. So it's been great in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you touch on something so important too, like you keep learning because this industry is changing so quickly. Like you so don't keep quickly. up with it. Yeah. A, a year ago, I would not be taking a class on TikTok ads. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't be, you know, or I wouldn't, and I wouldn't have, and there's so many things I still don't know. I mean, I just learned about deep point of view, which I might have been using it without knowing it, but I just right. learned that phrase and about it, like in the last two years. So there's so much. And now when I read a book that's not in deep point of view, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this author is not writing deep point of view. <laughs> you know, I was reading a John Grisham book and I was like picking him apart. Um, but uh, it's, it does, it like, like you said, it's continual. It can be really overwhelming actually for right. a lot of yeah. new authors. That's one of the bad things, but, um, but you really just got to do the best you can. And so many new authors are like, I'll never catch up. I'll never do this. It's like, we didn't have any of this. Like you're, you are already so far ahead of, you know, so many other authors, because there are a lot of authors that really have no idea even what they don't know. I mean, just, if you know what you don't know, you're already a step ahead. True. I mean, there's pros and cons to starting now and starting then, but now you have access. I remember looking for, I would come back on and off between the babies and looking for editors. Like it was pretty much writersdigest.com. I was on like, not Craigslist, but basically like yes, I was on Craigslist. asking like if somebody was an editor and it was like, first one I found I used because I didn't have an option. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and you didn't know. And now there's like seven types of editors and you're like, oh, <laughs> I did not know this. You know, it's good. It's good that we have uh, people who are willing to teach us and to keep up with us. Honestly, I don't think we can all keep up with everything. That's why there are specific people that I follow. Um, you're great at Goodreads and you're good. You have great ideas in your newsletters. And I just think as authors, it's really important to find those people and follow them because you can't keep up with everything. No. But how did you come up with the idea of InkersCon? And it sounds like a crazy endeavor to put together a live 
writing conference. That sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Anchors. So if you're listening, Anchors Con is, is a annual writing conference. Now we've, we've expanded and we have a, different free events, webinars and things like that year round. But, um, but the gist of Anchors Con is it's, it's a uh, annual authors conference. It's available in person in Dallas or online. And it was, I was creating my online courses. And so I have them in writing, marketing, and publishing. And Mm -hmm. it was really me realizing how little I actually knew. Like there were so many areas that I just didn't know a lot. And I could make a video about maybe, I don't know, Facebook ads, but really I'm not the best person to teach that. Like the best person to teach that is a Facebook ads expert um, who I love Mallory Cooper, but there's a ton of them out there. And um, yeah, she's fantastic. So it was really like, okay, why don't I, and so the plan, so that is sort of like, if I got all of the smartest people together, you know, um, and had them each speak on their topic, and it was not going to be an in-person conference. It was going to be, had them each speak on their topic and we were to record them professionally, you know, and then we, I could put together like a course of all of these people, kind of the thought. So then I was looking at the logistics of flying everybody into the same place so we could be consistent with the video and everything else. And then it was like, it seems crazy to have all these awesome people together and not let readers or not let authors be there also, you know? So um, I talked to my sister, who's our conference head, and we were like, what do we think about just doing a conference? But, um, but we wanted to also have the online component okay. and um and she was like, let's do it. And so that was basically how we, the live conference was really just a byproduct of putting it together for, for a digital event. Okay. And at the time, this is back in 2019, you had like summits, which were very sales driven and, and just different. I don't know. It's just mm-hmm. a slightly different feel. And you had in-person conferences, but you didn't have something that was both. Nowadays, because of COVID, like yeah. so many conferences are going virtual. But back in 2019, when we launched like nobody was doing it. It was like, you know, it was, we were the only one out there in that sea, which really gave us a leg up when COVID happened because we were already, we had everything already in place for the right. So we have the live conference, which is in Dallas. Um, and we have four main focuses, marketing, business, advertising, and writing 24 classes. And then we film everything happening at the conference, not the social events, but everything, you know, by a team of videographers, and, and then package it. And then we launch it for the digital attendees three weeks later, or I'm okay. sorry, it's not three weeks later. It's like five or six weeks later for the digital attendees. Um, and then we have three weeks of digital events that are happening as part of that digital. Oh, so, nice. And I think you've attended the digital conference in the yes. past, but, and then they have access for six years. We used to do it for a year and then attendees were like, I, you know, I can't like my, my access is expiring. Can I have it for longer? So we're like, all right, three years. And then it was like, I, why are we limited three years? We'll do six. And probably eventually we'll just do 10 or 20 years, but I, I don't know where the world's going to be in six years. So I'm, you know, yeah, at some point they, they just need to go to the new one because right, yeah. things would be different. <laughs> craft classes are forever pretty much. Right. Yeah. For marketing yeah. and advertising. World, yeah. So is it mostly for romance writers or is it a wide audience? No, it's wide. Um, okay. Yeah. And that was really important to me in the beginning because I am romance and suspense. Right. And we already had a ton of fantastic romance conferences and there are a ton mm-hmm. of fantastic. But I wanted to also, I know how we market our books in the romance world and I and all of the bubbles that I'm in 
with other authors or romance, but I want to know about like someone who's killing it in urban fantasy right. and what they're trying because it's like two different worlds and we don't really talk to each other. We don't share Facebook groups typically. We don't share marketing. Um, so I really wanted to learn from the other industries, both their secrets and craft and their the way that they construct stories, but also really in their marketing, what they're doing um, and to kind of open up those lines of communication. So it's all adult fiction. You know, we don't okay. do children's books. We don't do middle grades, though. I'm sure a middle grades person would do it. And it's um, we do have some traditional authors, traditionally published authors who attend, but we're really built for indie authors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what what would then be the difference between attending live? I don't know. I'm sure it gives it, especially coming out of COVID, yeah. like it'd be nice to see people's faces. <laughs> yeah. But what are the benefits of one versus right. one? Yeah. So the, um, so the live, you always get digital access. So okay. you don't, if you're live, you don't have to choose between the two, you get both, but live is more expensive. You have to go to Dallas. Live is great. If you, if you're ready to kind of rejoin and you feel comfortable interacting with other people in the post COVID, you know, mm-hmm. situation, but it's great. And I, Jamie Albright, who's an author friend of mine, she was saying on Clubhouse the other day, she's like, she, when she signs up for a lot of digital things and she just never watches the classes, you know, yes. she's like, I, I'll sign up. I have good intentions, but I don't do it. She's like, I need to be there. I need to have my butt in a seat. You know, I, I need it or else I'm not going to watch it. And so she's like, she is only doing in person from now on. Like she made a decision. Um, right. So there are some people like that. The other thing, which digital conferences were lacking for a long time was that chatting in the hall in between the classes, Mm -hmm. grabbing, you know, when you're in line to get coffee, talking to the author behind you, the chance to meet in person with Amazon reps, you know, or BookBub um, reps or that sort of thing. So all of those aspects are, you know, typically better at a live conference. Right. Now, that being said, one of our most popular parts of the digital conference is roundtables, which is any attendee can start a live video discussion. It's your option whether you want to turn on your camera on a certain topic. And we had almost a hundred of them last year. Um, over 40 were videotaped so that other people could watch the replays later on. But they could be on anything, whether it's like urban fantasy characters or I don't know, yeah, with segments or whatever. So that really that interaction, some people joined the digital conference and all they did was sit in round tables for eight hours a day for those three weeks. Like it was insane. I was amazed at how much activity there was in those round tables. So we're, and we are doing those round tables at the live event, but that sort of interaction is why most authors who do go to live conferences like the live events, because they want that meet and greet and that interaction. Um, but there are a lot of authors like me, truly, honestly, if I could never leave my house, I would never leave my house. <laughs> like I love being at home and I do not like traveling. So I go to Inker's Con, obviously, because I need to be there. And because it is one of the greatest weeks of my entire year, every year. But if I was just, if I didn't have, you know, if I was just an author and I had the option of, of staying at home versus traveling and granted, I have a family and you know, a lot of obligations that I should be in town for, but, um, but the digital access is a lot easier for, you know, especially if you're in New Zealand or. Yeah. And I, I have to say like your digital conference last year, and I attended a lot during COVID (laughs) because I'm curious about about how people would set it up, but yours was was really amazing because of the round tables, which I hadn't seen 
maybe somebody else did it, but I personally hadn't seen it because it really gave you the feeling that you were there with someone and that you, you know, you weren't alone because otherwise you're on zoom, you know, for a lot of conferences and you're just listening and your mind wanders, (laughs) but you, you know, like taking like Mal Cooper's, um, she did book blurbs last year and then like going to a, a round table and talking about it, really fixing your people remember things that you didn't remember and just with people and it's a good collaboration tool. So when you're swapping newsletters or books or whatever, blog posts, whatever people do in all their different genres, it's a great way to make contact with those authors. So you guys did a really great job. So if anyone either can't attend or, you know, for COVID or whatever, it really is a different digital conference than most of them. I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you. And we're, we are, we still have growing pain. So there were, you know, last year was first year we opened round tables to unlimited size. It used to be we were limited mm. to 20 the prior year. And on day one of round tables, they launched and they immediately filled up, which is the same thing that was happening here before. And someone was like, why can't we just have a, like, what, what is the reason to limit it to 20 people? And, and the beauty of us, like our small team is we like, let's have that discussion. And it was like, you know what? Yeah. We'll open it up and, and let's see how it goes. And, and it was great that we did because the logistics, I mean, people were getting so frustrated. It was like a lottery. Like if you didn't, if you weren't there when a round table was posted, you didn't get a seat and people were grabbing seats, even if they couldn't get in, you know, or weren't sure if they'd be able to make it. And it was just, it was just wild. And next year we'll fix next year. We'll have a more seamless zoom process too. Um, sure. We so, all learn. Right. But your team yeah, was very learn. responsive. You guys never seem stressed. I don't know if you were, you know, like the a lot of times you can we tell all like, five years and then after that, it was easy. Yeah. Nothing's working. <laughs> That's why I think you guys are amazing for even, even doing it. Um, we will definitely have links in the show notes for Inker, Inker's Con this year. It's June 3rd through the 5th, correct? Yep. The live it's events, the 3rd through the 5th in Dallas, Plano, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. And then digital launches like July, the middle of July, July 16th, I think. Something okay. Like that. Well, we'll have a link to that for everyone to find information about it. But where can people find you? Where do you hang out mostly? It sounds like you have a Facebook group. Where can they find you and and all the things that you have to offer? All of the stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Alessandra Tori Inkers is the Facebook group. I'd love to have you join there. I think we have like over 20,000 authors as part of that group. Um, and then if you're interested in um, getting my emails, it's alessandratoriinkink.com. Um, and there'll be like a subscribe button that pops up somewhere. Um, but if you sign up there, you can get um, the hopefully helpful stuff that I yes. <laughs> send out. It's very helpful. Stuff. Yeah, <laughs> very helpful stuff. And you can find um, Alessandra Tori's books and AR Tori, right? That is your yeah, suspense. Perfect. Yeah, on all of the platforms. Yeah, most of my um I'm most of my books are in KU. My new the publisher okay. is yeah, is Amazon Publishing. So yeah, so most of my stuff's in KU, but I also have stuff wide in both genres. So if you're interested, if you're wide or KU, I got you covered. Yes, and she has over 20 books. Just don't there, so read you can wine older than <laughs> Just don't read wine <laughs> until she can get it back. <laughs> if you're an author and you're interested, The Ghost Rider is my best book for authors. It's the, the author is a main character. Um, and so, yeah, authors like The Ghost Rider. 
Oh, good. Good. I'll have that in the show notes as well. Well, thank you so much, Alessandra, for coming on. I really enjoyed talking with you. I had a great time. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, you're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? It would really help the Pencils Olympic podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.